Morning, church family. I hope you're all well today on this Lord's Day, worshiping together in our homes. We miss you all so much. It's so sad not being able to be with each of you right now. My sweet wife was very gracious and willing to come sit in the back row today and listen to this so I wouldn't have to be preaching to an empty church instead. It was weird, though. She had insisted on bringing over a basket of tomatoes, and uh, I'm not sure why she wanted to do that. Um, But in all seriousness, trying to imagine each of your faces right now because I know that you'll be listening to this, and I'm praying that God would be gracious to overcome the fact that you're not here in person. I pray that he will still be able to communicate his word effectively through this recording to, uh, to all of us. It's a, it's a blessing to be able to do this, and I'm so thankful for the technology that we have other times in church history. If we were experiencing some kind of pandemic like what we're experiencing right now, it wouldn't be possible to preach like this to the church. But as grateful as I am for this, I think we've seen over the past few weeks how this method of communication and preaching is so crude and such an inadequate substitute for the real thing. I hope that we are feeling the importance of gathering in person, that we see how special it is to get to meet with one another face to face and to worship God together in the same place on his Lord's Day. I'm so thankful to God for the glorious gift of community and for the Lord's Day that he's given his church to come together and to worship him. So I pray that as we're in our own homes right now, that we would long to to be reunited in our hearts and that we would never, ever take our gatherings for granted as a church. I'm going to read the passage for today and then I'll pray. We've been working through the book of Hebrews and today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, looking at verses 6 through 13. If you have your Bibles open, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll read the passage and then we'll pray. From the ESV, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 6 through verse 13. This is the word of God. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gracious exhortation that you give us here in verse 11 to strive to enter that rest. You are so good and so loving and so merciful 
in making this rest available to us through Christ. Please cause us to see it as glorious as it is. Cause us to see that it remains open and cause us to make every effort to give everything we have to enter that rest today. Lord, please cause us to see the consequences of not entering your rest. Cause us to see that every single person, us included, are exposed before you. And if we do not enter your rest in Christ, we will stand before you in our sin and be condemned. Lord, please compel us this morning to heed the exhortation in verse 11 to strive with everything we have to enter that rest. Lord, please answer that prayer for us individually. Answer that prayer for us as a church. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your own glory, that you might be reflected in us, that you would do it out of your love for us and out of your care for us, that we would enter the rest that you've provided for us in Christ. Lord, please bless this uh, message. Cause it to be communicated effectively, even through this recording. Please, Lord, speak powerfully through your word. Cause me to proclaim this clearly and effectively by your grace. Give each and every one of us attentive hearts. Cause us to receive this the way that you would desire us to. Cause us to be rightly impacted by your word today. To be convicted of the ways that we are failing to strive with all of our hearts. To repent of that and by your power in Christ seek to enter that rest. Lord, we're so thankful for your word and we're so thankful that you would be pleased to uh, that you would be pleased to, to speak to us in these ways. Glorify yourself during this time, we pray, and the effects that it has on us. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. So the sermon is titled, Make Every Effort to Enter. And that's based on verse 11. Verse 11 is, is kind of the crux of this passage. The verses before it, verses 6 through 10, are a reason for heeding the command in verse 11. And then the verses after it, verses 12 through 13, are another reason for heeding the command in verse 11, which is this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In the U.S. right now, COVID-19 has spread to all 50 states. As of yesterday, when I was looking at this, there were at least 250,000 cases of coronavirus in the U.S., and over 6,000 people have already died. These are real people. These are real men, real women, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. 6,000 have already died here in the U.S. And around the world, over a million people have been, have been infected, and over 54,000 people have died. The government in, in our county has released death toll projections, and it's hard to know how reliable these things are. And we, when we consider the impact that this has already have on the, uh, when we consider the impact this has already had on the world relative to the size of the population in the U.S. and globally, it's maybe it's it's not as dramatic as it can appear, but the reality is that there are people that are dying, and there are people that will continue to die. And as a result, uh, mortality is on our minds more. Death is something that we're thinking about more and have been confronted with uh, on a daily basis. And for what it's worth, this is a good thing. If you recall, when we were looking at the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards in our prayer furnace, one of Edwards' resolutions was to reflect often on his own dying. Resolution number nine says this, quote, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying 
and of the common circumstances which attend death. Reflecting on our death is like jumping into cold water. It wakes us up. It shocks us back into reality. It reminds us that every single day we live on the precipice of eternity. Every single day we live in the face of death. And the reality is that each and every one of us, without exception, will die at some point. We're all only hours before we stand before the throne. And when we realize that, that ought to change the way we live now. We must live today in light of tomorrow, in light of the eternal tomorrow, which we will all be experiencing soon. We need to make the most of the time we have now and to truly strive with all our hearts to enter that rest as the author of Hebrews commands us to this morning. That rest remains open for you as long as you live. Enter it yourself. Strive to help others enter that rest because as Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and then after that comes judgment. Today, as long as it is called today, make sure you have eternal life. We cannot wait. We're not promised tomorrow. And when death is before our eyes like it is in the COVID-19 situation right now, it should create a right sense of urgency for us. We've been working through the book of Hebrews the past several weeks, and we've seen the author display the superiority of the Son, the superiority of the Son to angels, the superiority of the Son to Moses. And seeing Christ like this ought to necessitate our faith and obedience. In chapters 3 and 4, we see that this faith-driven obedience is the requirement for entering God's rest. And we saw that the wilderness generation, the uh, generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, that they heard the good news, but they didn't believe, and as a result, they failed to reach it. The author of Hebrews calls us to learn from their example. He says, don't be like them. Rest remains open for his people. The same rest that God had on the seventh day when he looked at creation and he saw that everything was very good. His satisfaction in the completed work and the finished work of creation and his glorification in that, that same rest we can enter into as well. Our rest is patterned after his and that rest remains open for us. Now it's important to understand when we're talking about rest, we're not talking about physical rest necessarily, even though that is a, a part of it ultimately. We're not talking about you working to get to the end of the day so you can sit in front of your couch and, and watch TV or that vacation that you've been, been waiting for. And we're not talking about the kind of rest that you get when you sleep in later on a Saturday morning. We're talking about the rest of satisfaction and glorification in a completed work. And I want to say that again because I need us to keep this in mind this morning. When we're talking about God's rest, we're talking about his satisfaction and his glorification in the outcome of his completed works. His satisfaction and glorification in the outcome of his completed works. In his case, it's creation, and our rest is worship and satisfaction and eternal life and being the new people of God in the new Canaan promised land, worshiping him forever in perfection. And so the main point this morning, which is centered in verse 11, is very simple. It's to make every effort to enter Christ's rest. Make every effort to enter Christ's rest. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would be compelled by this passage, that we would see the great rest of Christ that remains open, that we would see what it looks like to strive to enter it, what we should do to enter it, and that we would see what happens if we don't. I pray that we would be compelled to make every effort 
to enter Christ's rest by seeing the great rest that remains open, that it's Jesus' rest, not Joshua's, that we would see what we should do to enter it, that we should give all that we have, and that we would see what happens if we don't. Point three, the all-exposing word of God. So three points, uh, Jesus' rest, not Joshua's. Point two, give your all to enter it. And point three, the all-exposing word of God. Let me show you first the great rest of Christ that remains and be compelled as a result to make every effort to enter it. Read with me in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying, Through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 6 says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter. It remains for some to enter. God determined that some people would enter his rest. And if it wasn't going to be the wilderness generation, if they weren't going to enter, then there must be some other people that would. And that some is a broad word. It's referring to all possible people that could enter his rest. Perhaps you are in that some. Perhaps I am in that some. I pray that we are. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you could possibly raise an objection here because you know that eventually Israel did enter God's rest, that God had promised Israel a land and that he had promised to give them rest in this land. Indeed, in the Old Testament, the promise of rest was associated with the secure possession of the land of Canaan, of the promised land, of Israel being God's nation and him being their God. And that was actually accomplished in the Old Testament in the conquest of Joshua. Joshua led them into the promised land and he secured it for them. We can trace this thread back to the covenant of Abraham. God of all the peoples in the world, he singles out Abraham and he decides he's going to make a people for himself. And in his covenant with Abraham, he promises this people, this nation, a land. He says in Genesis 15, 18, uh, verses 18 through 21, quote, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God promised the nation of Israel, he promised Abraham's descendants a land. And we see that this promise was reiterated by Moses in the law in Deuteronomy 12, that God promises to to give them rest from their completed work, that he promises rest from the conquest, and as a result, they would be able to worship God properly, or following their rest, they would worship God properly, I should say. Deuteronomy 12, God says, quote, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. This is him speaking through Moses now. Verse 9, For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that Yahweh your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. So Moses says that after God gives you rest in the land, when you have rest from your enemies, then you will worship God 
properly. And we see that this is exactly what Joshua did for the nation of Israel. He conquered the tribes that were in the land, or the nations that were in the land, and then after they settled, um, they had rest from their enemies. Joshua speaking to the eastern tribes that settled on the other side of the Jordan, and after they had helped their brothers settle in the land, Joshua says to them in Joshua 22, verse 4, he says, And now the Lord your God has, past tense, given rest to your brothers. He has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possessions lie, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. He says, God rested them. The work is completed. You now possess the land securely as his people. And so it looks as if that promise was already fulfilled in the Old Testament. But what does the author say of Hebrews? Verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, if that promise had really been fulfilled, then David, or the psalmist here in Psalm 95, wouldn't have spoken of another day hundreds of years later. When the psalmist was writing this, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He speaks of another day. In the psalmist generation, he's saying, today, don't harden your hearts so that you can enter that rest too. Psalm 95, verses 6 through 9, listen to the words of the psalmist. He says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, 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 if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. He speaks of a rest today. And it's so, God is so gracious and so glorious, it's clear that he must have had something greater in mind when he made this promise, uh, when he made this promise to Abraham. Um, and when Moses spoke of a promised rest for the people, yes, it was fulfilled in one sense when Israel took the promised land, but God had something so much greater in mind with respect to the promised rest for his people. It was a rest that remained then in David's day, and it's a rest that remains for every generation later. What exactly is this rest? Look at the conclusion in verse 9. The author says, quote, So then there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a rest that remains open for every later generation, the psalmist day and now. He calls it a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest. That's the only time this word is used here in the New Testament. And when he talks about a Sabbath rest, it's highlighting an aspect of, of joyful celebration and of festivity, and of worship. That it's a time of celebrating and praising God and worshiping God and joyfully adoring Him as a result of the work that's been completed. He further clarifies what this rest is in verse 10. He says, Whoever whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Our rest is like God's rest. How did God rest? As we heard last week, God's rest was his satisfaction and his glorification in the outcome of his finished works, in his case in creation. And God's satisfaction and glorification in the outcome of his works is the pattern for our rest. As God rested, so too do we. Sometimes when you drive through neighborhoods, you'll notice that all of the houses look very similar in the neighborhood. Um, And that's oftentimes on purpose. There might might be a, a prototype or a design that then the 
uh, that, that then is desired for every single house uh, to follow and, and to look after um, and, and to look similar to. Uh, and after that prototype design, all of the other homes are then patterned. God's rest on the seventh day is like that prototype. It's the original design that our rest is supposed to look like. And that our rest uh, reflects his rest. Um, it follows the same uh, design and pattern of his. Uh, our rest is like the, the, the homes um, that are patterned after the prototype. As he was satisfied and glorified himself in the outcome of his works and creation, so too are we satisfied and glorify him in the outcome of our works. Now the question is, well, what are, what are our works? Uh, one commentator put it well. He said, these are, quote, works of consecration, the faith and obedience required to establish and maintain covenant relationship with God. Our works are works of consecration, the faith and obedience required to establish and maintain covenant relationship with God. Our work that we rest in, that, that, that uh, we rest in the outcome of, um, as it's completed, is the faith and consequent obedience that sets us apart as God's people. It, it is faith first, John 6, 28 through 29. We read, quote, the people said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But we see that it's not just faith, it's not just trusting in God, but this faith is a faith that results in obedience. James 2 says, quote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implication is no, that faith cannot save him. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I love that word, it's dead, it's ineffective. It can't save you if it doesn't have works. So our work is a faith that produces obedience. It's a faith-driven obedience. That's the work that we rest in. Or I should say, when that work is completed, the outcome of that is what we're satisfied in and what we glorify God in. What was the outcome of God's created work? It was a very good creation, as he says in Genesis, 1, in Genesis 2. It is very good. What is the outcome of our work? What's the outcome of our faith-driven obedience? We may have heard this passage read last week, but it's pertinent for us today too. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Peter says. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What is it? The salvation of your souls. The outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. God was satisfied and worshiped himself in the outcome of his work. So too do we worship him and are satisfied in the outcome of our work. We're satisfied in the outcome of our faith-driven obedience because that outcome is eternal life. It's the heavenly promised land. It's being his people forever and him being our God. And in that satisfaction, we glorify him and we worship him. We participate in that eternal Sabbath celebration. God truly had so much more in mind than bringing Israel into the land of Canaan. He envisioned a spiritual rest, a true, ultimate, eternal rest for his people. Did Joshua accomplish that? Have to laugh, absolutely not. Joshua did not accomplish that for the people of God, but Jesus did. And it's really interesting. If you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that this verse translates the word Joshua as Jesus. And it's a mistranslation, but the reason why it does that is because it's the same word. 
Jesus is the word in Greek for Jesus. And it's the same, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word, which is Yahshua, which we translate Joshua, and both have the meaning of Savior. And some think that this could be an intentional wordplay here on the part of the author of Hebrews. That yes, Joshua did not bring them in to the uh, rest of God, but the true Joshua, the ultimate Joshua, the real Jesus, the real Yeshua, the real Savior, Jesus, did. You know, we talk about types and shadows in theology, and I don't know if you ever stopped to think about those terms before, but it's really, it's really, a, great, uh, it's really a great image. Um, if, you, if you think about that neighborhood again, of all of the houses that are similar to each other, that are patterned after the prototype, I want you to think of, of the home with the sun behind it and the shadow that it's casting on the street. The shadow that you see, if you look at it, the shadow is not the home itself. The shadow is just a reflection of the home. The shadow is a, is a mirror image of the home. In the same way, when we talk about shadows in theology, we're saying that Joshua's resting of Israel in the land of Canaan, that that was a shadow. It was a reflection. It was a mirror image of the real thing itself, of the home itself which is the rest we have in Christ. Christ's rest is the substance. Joshua's rest in the land of Canaan was the reflection of that and the shadow of that. But the real rest is Christ. And that home, Christ's rest, that's designed after the prototype of God's rest. It follows the pattern of God's rest. The true rest is offered by the true Yeshua, the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, quote, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How does Jesus secure true spiritual rest? How does he secure eternal life in the heavenly promised land and make us God's people. He does it the same way the Jesus or the Yeshua did it before him. The same way Joshua defeated the enemies in the land of Canaan that stood in the way of the promised land, so too does Jesus defeat our enemies that stand in the way of inheriting that eternal rest. But our enemies were not flesh and blood. Our enemies were not Canaanites. Our enemies were sin and death themselves. We could not enter God's rest. We do not have a right relationship with God apart from Christ. We were disobedient. We deserve God's wrath. Our sin stood in the way of us entering that promised land. We couldn't inherit it. But Jesus came to annihilate our sin. He came to conquest. He came to destroy our sin through his own death. That on the cross, God, instead of pouring out his wrath on us, instead of punishing us for our sin, he punished Jesus for our sin instead. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and brought it down to the grave with him, and that he raises us to life again with him so that we can have a right relationship with God through his resurrection, that we're raised to life as new people, that we can be reconciled to God as his people. And as a result, he secures for us that life forever right relationship with God, us as his people, him as our God, and worthy of eternal life forever. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11 says this, the Apostle Paul, God speaking through Paul, quote, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Come to Jesus. Come to the true Joshua. Find rest for your souls. Jesus stands there to offer what Joshua didn't. He offers true spiritual rest. He offers satisfaction in the outcome of your saving faith. Satisfaction in worshiping God in eternal life in a right relationship with God forever. Being the new people of God in the new Canaan, worshiping him in perfection. If you hear this, repent and believe. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge you don't deserve that rest. Acknowledge that you deserve to be separated from God forever in hell. And instead, turn away from your sin and trust alone in Jesus to save you. Trust alone in him to conquer your death, to conquer your sin, and to grant you that rest that he offers to all who come and trust alone in him to give it. In, uh, in studying this passage, it's interesting to see different perspectives on whether this rest is referring only to a rest that happens in the future or whether it's referring to a present reality as well. I think even though the emphasis may be on a rest we enter in the future, it certainly is true that we experience at least some of this rest today, and perhaps it's highlighted by the, by the fact that it refers to today. Today, if you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In the New Testament and throughout Scripture, there's this concept of already, not yet, that in a sense, we already have this promised rest, but yet we're not experiencing it fully that we experience some of the outcome of our faith already, that we truly have eternal life now, that we have right relationship with God now, even though we're not experiencing that as, as fully and perfectly as we will in the future. But the fact that we already have eternal life, the fact that we already have Christ, that we have him, that we have his rest, that should be enough to overwhelm us with peace and joy regardless of our circumstances regardless of whether we're having to shelter in place because there's a deadly virus in the world, or regardless of whether life is as good as it could possibly be in this world, we should be satisfied and we should be content because all of our deepest desires are completely fulfilled in him. You have Jesus. You have the promised rest of God. You have eternal life. Taste that now and eagerly await for the future consummation of that. I think that this future consummation is anticipated in God's promise to bring back the exiles to Israel. In Jeremiah 32, we get a beautiful picture of this. Listen to the words of the prophet. He says, quote, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What more could you possibly want? Get that picture in your mind. Here's the application for you. You want an application point? Desire that. Long for that deeply. There's no greater rest than the rest that you could be offered in Christ. What rest do you want now? What rest are you working towards now? Perhaps you're working towards that, that, that time off 
that's coming up in a few weeks, or that next day off. Perhaps there's a trip or a vacation that you're looking to. Perhaps you're just working to get to the weekend so you can rest and get a few extra hours of sleep. This rest that Christ offers is infinitely, infinitely better. Picture yourself in heaven, feasting in Zion as we had a chance to sing earlier today, with him in his immediate presence, seeing him in perfect relationship with him, loving him, being loved by him in perfect relationship with everyone else in the world. No sin, no suffering, no death, glorifying him forever. Meditate on that rest. The more you do, the more you'll want it, the more you'll long for it, more than just about anything else in this world. It is so perfect and sweet and beautiful and glorious, and it's really, truly open to you. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Seeing the rest that remains open, what should you do? Seeing the rest that remains open, What should our response be? Point two, give your all to enter it. Give your all to enter it. See the concluding exhortation in verse 11. Since this glorious rest remains open, verse 11, quote, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What should you do? The author of Hebrews or God speaking through the author says, make every effort to enter. It means push on with something zealously or let us become zealous. Exert yourself, fully apply yourself, show full diligence, try your hardest, give everything you have to enter that rest. How? It's already been explained above, Hebrews 4.3. Verse A says, quote, For we who have believed enter that rest. Those who believe in the promises of God, which entails a saving faith in God himself, a personal trust in God himself. Um, That's what we need to enter that rest. We need a personal trust in God. And that personal trust in God, if it's real, will result in obedience to him. Disbelief or a lack of of faith in the promises and faith in God is the reason that they couldn't enter. We see in Hebrews 3.19, quote, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And the warnings actually repeated again in the latter part of verse 6, our passage today. It says, quote, those who formerly received the good news, that's the news of the promise, failed to enter because of disobedience. The reason in chapter 3 was disbelief. The reason here is disobedience. Disbelief and disobedience always go together. They're like two sides of the coin. That's not necessarily the best analogy because uh, disobedience is really the fruit of disbelief. It'd be more like thinking of disbelief as the tree and disobedience as the fruit or the product of that. But disobedience is really what brackets this section here. Verse 6b says, Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's warning us against disbelief and disobedience, and if we're to strive to enter that rest, then that means we should be striving for faith and the obedience that that yields. So strive to do what? Have and exercise that genuine faith, that faith that produces obedience. Are you striving for that? Are you striving for that faith? Not just keeping your faith alive, but really seeking for your faith to thrive, Are you trying to grow your faith-driven obedience the most you possibly can? To obey God the most you possibly can? 
Second Peter, or Peter in his second epistle, gives us a great picture of what this growing faith should look like. He says in verse five, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing and are increasing, they're continuing to grow, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't saying that we need to have a perfect faith in order to be saved. Our faith is part of what's perfected by Christ itself. And on this side of heaven, our trust will never be good enough. It will never be, uh, it will never be perfect. I mean, we're not saved by a perfect faith. Again, that's part of what, uh, what we receive um, in, uh, in Christ's righteousness being um, parted to us. If that were the case, um, if you need a perfect faith to be saved, no one would be saved. However, what this is telling us here is that a saving faith is a faith that pushes to grow. A saving faith is a faith that seeks to continue to add to itself and to build itself up and to seek obedience in every aspect of your life. If your mindset is that you just want to eke through life and have just enough faith to make it into heaven, that's not saving faith. If your faith is you're just going to go to church and you're going to read and pray sometimes and you're going to, uh, to serve others every now and then, um, and, uh, and know that you're saved by faith and feel safe in that. That's not the way you're saved. You should be fearful for yourself. You should lack assurance that that's your mindset because saving faith is a growing faith. It's a striving faith. It gives everything it has to reach for perfection. It seeks to exact obedience in everything that you do all the time. Some of us need to take this more seriously. There's so much apathy and so much spiritual lukewarmness around us. Remember Christ's warning on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, quote, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you're not striving with everything you've got, you might fall. Verse 11 says, quote, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Are you striving to enter? Are you striving to really have that faith that produces obedience, that faith-driven obedience? You know, this year, because of COVID-19, the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which were scheduled to start on July 24th, were postponed to next year, to 2021. In a modern history, this is the only time the Olympics have been moved previously were during world wars. And it really is such an incredible event to have nations from all around the world gathered together to participate in the greatest competition possible. Athletes that have trained oftentimes their entire lives, or at least for many years, coming together to compete with one another. I'm always inspired by the dedication and hard work of the athletes uh, and what it took for them to get to that point. Oftentimes thousands and thousands of hours went into winning that gold medal. 
and in, uh, in, in their sport. If you want to talk about striving, if you want to talk about making every effort, giving your all to enter the rest in the outcome of your work, which in their case would be a gold medal, you're not going to find much greater examples in the world than in the world of professional athletics. And Michael Phelps, who's the most decorated Olympian of all time, is such a great example of this. From the Olympic side itself, we read, quote, by the time he retired at Rio 2016 at the age of 31, Michael Phelps had collected a total of 23 golds, three silvers, and two bronzes at the Olympics, a record-breaking haul that looks unlikely to be, uh, to be bettered for many years to come. His training, we read about it in an article in Men's Journal, quote, Olympic accomplishments aside, the most interesting thing about Phelps may be his training, if only because it's so standard. The Phelps difference, he says, quote, volume and intensity. At his training peak, Phelps was swimming an almost unbelievable amount, 80,000 meters every week. That's almost 50 miles. He trained two a day, three times a week, and once every other day, and any time he wasn't in the pool, he was recovering. Phelps says, quote, ice bath, stretching, working with the trainer, getting massages, and I slept in a chamber at 9,000 feet. He also says, quote, there are reasons why I swam every holiday, every Christmas, every birthday. He added, explaining why he was the most dedicated of swimmers, quote, I was trying to be as prepared as I could, and I tried to see what I could really do and what my potential was. I just really did kind of whatever it took. Whatever it takes. Had his mind fixed on the prize and was determined to do whatever it takes to have that. Oh, how I wish that we would have this mindset of Christians. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Whatever it takes, we get what it looks like for an athlete to strive for victory. But what about a Christian? What does it look like to really strive for faith-driven obedience? There's different aspects that we could look at uh, when it comes to giving your all to something. But there's two that I really want to hone in on, and it's similar to what the article I had read from Identified with reference to Phelps training, he talks about volume and intensity. I'll change that to time and intensity. Time and intensity spent in striving for faith and obedience. I want to ask you a few self-examination questions, and I hope that after these, you'll reflect honestly on your life right now. I will ask you these, and I'm, I'm going to pause and please take a moment to seriously examine your life to see, am I really dedicating the time and intensity that I ought to to my faith-driven obedience? How much time daily do you spend exercising and strengthening your faith by seeking God through the means of grace? So getting really practical here, I want you to ask yourself this. How much time, in terms of minutes, do you spend every day reading Scripture? How much time do you spend every day in prayer? At set times, how much are you praying? And how much time do you spend throughout the day lifting up prayers to God at all times? How much time do you spend thinking about spiritual things? I know for me, oftentimes throughout the day, my mind will wander from one thing to another, sometimes to work, sometimes to the movie I saw the other night, sometimes to what I've got to do tomorrow. How much time do you spend contemplating things that glorify God? 
How much time do you spend in community? Again, think about minutes. How much time every week are you with other brothers and sisters in Christ, exhorting one another in the faith, serving other people? How much time do you spend making disciples of your wife or of your spouse and of your children? How much time do you spend together in family worship? How much time do you spend making disciples and being discipled by other people here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church? How much time do you spend sharing the gospel with the lost in your life? How much time do you spend praying for and advancing the work of missions? When we look at how we spend our time, it reveals what we're really striving for and what we're not. But I don't want us to just think about time. Time's important. When you look at your life, you should see substantial amounts of time dedicated to these things that we had talked about, but it's not just the time that matters. It's the intensity with which we do them. It's the effort that we put into it. When you read your Bible, how passionately are you seeking God through the Word? Are you hearing Him speak to you personally? Every time you read, are you bringing his word to bear on yourself? Are you repenting of your sin? Are you seeing your life changed? Are you growing in your love for him and your fear of him and your trust in him every single time? Or do you find you're just checking off the box on your plan, trying to get through, just struggling to focus because you're so distracted? Strive. How fervently do you pray? When you come before God in prayer, Are you distracted and tired? Do you find yourself repeating the same old words religiously? Or do you truly wrestle with God in prayer? Do you mourn over your sin? Do you adore him from the bottom of your heart? Do you joyfully thank him? Do you petition relentlessly? Do you present to him your best arguments? Are they full of faith? Are you truly pleading with everything you've got? Maybe sometimes with fasting. Lifting up requests not only for yourself but for others too. Do you truly pray fervently? Do you scrutinize and examine all your thoughts and your feelings and your desires and your words and your actions? Not just making sure that you're not sinning but truly seeking to do whatever it is that most glorifies God possible. Do you ask those questions? Do you ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now the most pleasing to God that it could be? Do you weary yourself for the church? Not just going through the motions, but deeply loving other people, pouring into people, being transparent, sacrificing your finances and resources, putting their needs and wants above your own. This is how striving to enter should look. We should be giving it our all, all our time, all our intensity, every single day, without exception. If you were to ask someone close to you, would they say, that you're striving to enter? Would it be obvious to them? If you looked at Michael Phelps' life, it would be obvious to you that he's striving for something, that he's striving to win a gold medal. If someone were to look at your life, would it be obvious to them that you're striving to enter God's rest, that you're striving to have that faith-driven obedience? Or they say, oh, he, he used to try when he first got saved, or he does some good things, but he's not really... I wouldn't say he's making every effort. Would they say you strive at work for that promotion or that you strive in school to get the best grades or that you strive in your hobbies or that you strive to be seen well by other people? It's not necessarily wrong 
to strive for some of those things, but this is infinitely more important. And in striving to enter God's rest and to have that faith-driven obedience, we will rightly strive in all those other ways too. This is what we must seek. Seek the greatest faith-driven obedience possible. Seek it for yourself. Seek it for your brothers and sisters here. The Bible says no one will enter his rest without it. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Which is greater, the eternal rest offered in Christ or a gold medal? Every single Christian, without exception, should not just be seeking to imitate athletes like Michael Phelps. We'd be, we should be seeking to outdo them in our striving. Christians should put Olympians to shame in our dedication and hard work. We have much better things to strive for. We shouldn't be inspired by athletes. They should be inspired by Christians. The world should look on at the church for inspiration. They should look on to a people that's striving with all of their hearts. Do you think that's what they see? Do you think when the world looks at the church, they're inspired by how we give our all to the work that we've been called to? Why not? Why don't we? We certainly have a goal we're striving for. I think when it comes down to it, we just don't really believe the promises. It's so sad. We just don't believe that we really have a goal we're striving for or that it's something that we even need to strive for in the first place. Believe it and run with all your heart. See the promised rest of God. Believe in that. See the faith-driven obedience that's required to enter and strive with all your heart to run with everything you've got. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says in verses 24 through 25, do you, know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. They do it to receive a medal. We do it to receive the promised rest of God. Don't you want to live for something? Don't you want to strive for something real? If you look at your life and realize that you haven't, the response is simple. Repent. Acknowledge that you haven't been striving with all your heart. Realize that you're forgiven for your failings in Christ and turn to him. You have the power in Christ to do this. You have the Holy Spirit of God which dwells within you. Now put your hand to the plow and strive. Don't just continue in your ways. If you're content with your apathy and you're content with not giving this your all, you should be afraid for yourself. Examine your life for areas that need more obedience. I want you to think of, of two specific ways right now, two specific ways that you can dedicate more time and intensity to having the kind of faith and obedience that we need to enter that rest. Just think of two ways right now and after the sermon, you'll see in the service outline, that is the prayer for us, to pray for just those two ways we can dedicate more time and intensity to having this kind of faith-driven obedience. What are the two ways for you? Commit yourself to the means of grace, to scripture and prayer. Surround yourself with the church. Be blessed by prayer and encouragement and accountability from your church family, 
We need each other every single day. Exhort one another as long as it's called today. We can't have this kind of faith-driven obedience on our own. We need each other to push each other to this end. See the glorious, of re- the glorious rest of Jesus that's open. I pray that you're compelled to give your all to enter it. But if that's not a motivation enough to give your all, there's another reason here that the author gives. Another reason for striving like this. And that reason is what happens if you don't enter his rest. Last point, point three, the all-exposing word. Notice the word for in verse 12. It's another reason the author gives for us to strive, to make every effort. Verse 12, make every effort, quote, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Verse 12 is often misused. We hear it sometimes thrown around in the church as a verse that testifies the power of Scripture. And yes, in a sense it does. And yes, The scriptures are powerful and the word of God never returns void. Yes, we are sanctified in the truth and his word is truth. Yes, his word is powerful enough to speak creation to existence, to sustain all things, to convert the unconverted. But that's not what this verse is saying here. This verse is a warning. It's saying that the word of God exposes all people, including you, for judgment. It says that you are exposed before God. The word of God is God's self-expression, specifically in his written word, but also through his verbal word, and possibly also in Christ himself because he is the word incarnate. But the word of God is his self-expression, and here in this passage, probably the scriptures are the main thing that are in view, and it describes God's word as living and active. Those are two very similar words. It means that the word has the power in and of itself to make things happen. God's word is effective. It affects change. It achieves its goal. And we can't separate God from his word. His word is living because he's living. His word is effective because it's his word. What does it do? This verse says that it exposes your innermost parts. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, if you were in our systematic theology class, we talked about the soul and the spirit and the body, and perhaps you'll recall that we do believe the scripture teaches to a dichotomy, that there's an immaterial part of us and a material part of us that exists in in unity and harmony. We don't believe that the soul and the spirit are necessarily separate things, but they both describe the immaterial part of us, and that's true. They are indivisible. They are impenetrable. And that's actually the point here. God's word, as one commentator put it, quote, is capable of penetrating the impenetrable. It can divide what is indivisible. Soul and spirit, not dividable. Joint and marrow, not dividable. The word of God divides it. It's the only thing in the universe that can do this. And the reason why is because it's God's word. It's not just sharp like a two-edged sword. Notice what it says. It's sharper 
than a double-edged sword. It's more lethal and more dangerous because a sword can only pierce your body. God's word pierces your soul. It speaks right to your innermost parts. It speaks to your thoughts and intentions. It speaks to your desires and your feelings. And I don't know about you, but for me, if I had to say one area of my life where sin dwells the most, where there, where that, that, that's, the most that's the most sinful in God's eyes, my thoughts and my desires are probably the most wicked dimension of my life. And God's word speaks to that. We need to take our thoughts and desires seriously. They're like outward actions to God. He sees it all. And what we see here is that his word not only speaks to us, but it effectively reveals your deepest darkness. It discerns everything about you. Even those things that you think are hidden from every, everything else, the word speaks to that, and God's word will hold you accountable for everything. David paints this picture well in Psalm 139. Listen to his words with me. Oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, quote, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my innerward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in light and in the way everlasting. That is only a prayer a Christian could pray. God sees everything. He sees everything. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's stated negatively, no creature is hidden, and it's stated positively, all are naked and exposed. Those are two vivid images. You're naked before God, not just physically, but spiritually. There are no clothes for your heart. There are no fig leaves to cover up your desires and your thoughts and your feelings. Everything is seen. Shame is made known. And it says you're exposed. This word it literally means to seize and twist the neck or throat. To lay bare by bending back your neck. It can be referred to a wrestler's chokehold, rendering someone completely defenseless. Or like a sacrifice ready to be slain, lifting up the throat to slaughter. And who are we rendered defenseless before? Who are we completely exposed to with our neck bent back? It is the one, quote, to whom we must give an account. We must give a reckoning to God. It's an interesting use of language. In the original, 
Perhaps you could better translate it, we must give a word. In other words, we're exposed by God's word, and we, as one commentator said, shall be required to give a word in return. We stand before God naked and exposed, laid bare, neck bent back, completely and utterly helpless and defenseless before him. You know that feeling that you get when you realized something you didn't want to be seen or heard was heard by somebody else. Perhaps this has happened to you recently on Zoom, since we've been using Zoom a lot with each other or with other people. Sometimes you forget that everybody can see everything that you're doing and that everyone can hear everything that you're saying. And when you, when you say something about someone else and you don't expect them to hear it, and then you realize that they're very close to you and that they probably heard what you just said about them, you get this sickening feeling in your gut. You're mortified. Maybe you felt that for someone else. Maybe you've heard them say something that clearly wasn't meant to be overheard and you feel so embarrassed for them. How much worse to have all your thoughts and all your intentions broadcast and visible by somebody else. Can you imagine that? But not just that, how much worse to have that exposed to God himself, the one who all our offenses are ultimately against, and the one who sits on the judgment seat. If somebody else overhears your thoughts or something you didn't want them to hear, they can't really do anything to you. Maybe they can hurt you physically, but that's all. But when God sees everything, he's the one we must give an account to. Just think this past week, what's one thought that you've had that you'd be terrified to have typed up in an email and sent to the entire church. God saw that. He saw that, and he will hold you accountable, and he sees everything else too. This kind of exposure is terrifying, and it's terrifying because we're sinful. If we had nothing to hide, it wouldn't be a problem that we were laid bare before God, that he lifted up our neck, that we were naked before him. But that was the first thing Adam and Eve did for a reason. They went and tried to cover themselves with clothes. And the reason why is because we're guilty and God knows it all. There's a famous verse in Jeremiah about our sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are so wicked and so depraved. It's beyond comprehension. But you know what the verse after that says? Verse 10 I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That should cause us to tremble. God searches our desperately wicked hearts. He tests our mind and he gives every one of us exactly what we deserve. The author of Hebrews, he poses two options here. He says if you're not going to enter eternal life, if you're not going to enter the rest offered by Christ, the only alternative is death. You will be exposed to God in your sin, and the implication is that you will be condemned. You can choose heaven or you can choose hell. There's no other option. David's parting words to Solomon are fitting. He says in 1 Chronicles 28, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. 
If you seek him, he will be found, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. We have all forsaken him. We have all disobeyed. We all deserve to be forsaken by God for all of eternity, but praise Christ, he was forsaken for us. Matthew 5, or Mark, Mark 15, verse 34, Jesus on the cross cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus stands in between you and God. He stands to intercede for you. He takes your place. His neck was bent back. He was exposed for you. And your sin was transferred to him so that the perfectly just God of the universe could see you exposed and naked and look at your life and see everything you've ever done, every wicked thought, every, every evil word, every sinful feeling and desire and intention and action, and he can say, forgiven. Forgiven, 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 enter my rest. Though we have forsaken him, he will not cast us off forever because Jesus was forsaken in our place. Our only hope is Jesus. Right now we're all sheltering in place to hide from COVID-19. And I hope that it works. You must shelter in place in Christ. Shelter in place in him. Only he can save you. Hide in him. Stay inside him. He will stand in your place as your intercessor. He is our great high priest, which leads into the next section we'll see next week. So strive to be found in him, to enter the rest offered by the true Joshua. Jesus alone can conquer your sin and your death. If you do not enter his rest, your neck will be pulled back, you will be exposed in your sin, and you will be condemned by God. Be motivated by fear. That's the right response. Fear for yourself. Fear for other people. See life, see death, fear death, and choose life. Make every effort to have that faith-driven obedience we need to enter his rest. Strive for others to have it. How terrible a thought to imagine your loved ones coming before God, exposed in their sin to him without Christ. Contemplate this end. Don't let it be you, and don't let it be them. So in conclusion, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. With the COVID-19 situation, mortality is on our minds, and as a result, it should create a sense of urgency for us. As we heard last week, God's rest remains open. As long as today is today, we can soften our hearts and respond in saving faith. This is the last time rest is addressed in the epistle of Hebrews. In verses 6 through 10, we saw that he expounds on this rest. He shows us that it's Jesus' rest and not Joshua's, that it's a Sabbath rest, and that we rest in our outcome, in the outcome of our works, as God did from his. And we see that in light of that glorious rest remaining open, verse 11 exhorts us to make every effort to enter. We talked about what that striving looks like, Dedicating both your time and your intensity to faithful obedience, to faith-driven obedience. And we've also seen the consequence of not entering his rest. If we don't enter his rest, we will face the all-exposing word of God in our sin and have to give an account of our lives to him apart from Christ. See the great rest of Christ that remains open. See what happens if you fail to enter it. And make every effort. Exert yourself. Apply yourself. Give your all 110% by the power of the Holy Spirit 
to enter in. Let's pray. Lord, you are so gracious in securing this rest for us through Christ. The rest of the Israelites in the promised land was a shadow and a reflection of the glorious rest that we can have in you for all of eternity. Lord, we can rest and we can be satisfied and worship you in the outcome of our work, of our saving faith. And that outcome for us, Father, is eternal life in Christ, is right relationship with you now and forever. And we ask, Lord, that you would cause us to experience that rest as much as we can now, to enjoy and delight and rejoice in constantly in the fact that we have you in a right relationship with you in eternal life even now and eagerly wait for the eternal life that awaits us. Cause us to see the glorious rest that remains open and cause us to see our fate if we do not enter that rest. Cause us to see that we will be exposed before you and then if we don't have Christ, we will stand before you in our sin and be condemned in hell forever apart from you. Cause us to repent and to trust alone in you and to strive every single day with all of our hearts and with all of our might to have the kind of faith-driven obedience that is required of us to enter that rest. We're completely dependent on you by your spirit to make this happen. We ask that you would compel us by your grace to give everything we've got to enter your rest. Do this for your own reflection and glory in us and do it out of your great care and compassion and love for us as your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.